Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist, with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Melissa Fu about her historical novel, Peach Blossom Spring. Melissa grew up in northern New Mexico and now lives in Cambridge, England. Before focusing on writing, Melissa worked in education, with a background in physics and English. She was an apprentice at the Word Factory in 2017, and the David T.K. Wong Fellow at the University of East Anglia. In this episode, we discuss how her novel evolved from a short story, the benefits of Arts Council funding, and how inspiration comes when something stops her in her tracks. But first, here's Melissa with an extract from Peach Blossom Spring. Origins. Tell us, they say, tell us where you're from. He is from walking and walking and walking. He is from shoes filled with holes, blistered toes, and calloused heels that know the roughness of gravel roads and the relief in straw in grass. He is from staying each night in a different place, sometimes city, sometimes country, from roads that wrap around mountains and dip through valleys, from waterways shrouded in fog and mist. He is from walking across China. Tell us your memories, they say. He remembers kerosene lamps burning low, the smell of wood smoke, cold stone floors under his bare feet, urgent voices, the rasping of coins, carts creaking at night. He remembers a sandalwood puzzle picture. One way up, there were 100 monkeys. Turn it over there were 99. How did that monkey appear and disappear? He is from this mystery. Tell us more, they say, as they nestle by his side. How did you come here? He crossed rivers. He crossed oceans. He carried a watch bought from a sailor, a letter to open doors, a suitcase, a packet of light blue aerograms, a single pair of wool socks. He went towards the call of a beautiful country, a beckoning dream, a promise made of air. Towards wing beats of birds, kaleidoscopes of seasons he'd never imagined before. And now, they say, their eyes clear and voices playful, tell us a story. 
To know a story is to stroke the silken surfaces of loss, to feel the weight of beauty in his hands. To know a story is to carry it always, etched in his bones, even if dormant for decades. Tell us, they insist. To tell a story, he realizes, is to plant a seed and let it grow. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you on with me today. Hi, Chloe. I'm so pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Can you start us off by explaining the plot of your new novel, Peach Blossom Spring? Yes. So um, Peach Blossom Spring is a historical fiction. It follows three generations of a Chinese family uh, called the Daos. It starts in 1938 and we in, in China and we follow a mother and son across China for about over a decade of conflict and chaos due to first the Sino-Japanese War and then the Chinese, Chinese Civil War. They um, eventually flee China for Taiwan where there's a little of stability and the son ultimately goes to the US where he has a family of his own. Um, so it's a big novel. <laughs> it spans about 70 years. So it's about a lot of things. Um, but I'd say kind of at its heart, one of the overarching questions is how can you rebuild a sense of home, family and belonging when those things are shattered by conflict and war? Yeah, and, I, and you mentioned the kind of the scope of your novel. We'll talk a little bit about that later, because I can imagine it was an incredibly daunting task to have to write such a such a big time scale. But can you start by telling us where the inspiration came from? I read that you this this novel started life as a short story. That's right. It started life as a small short story <laughs> that was supposed to take place over about an afternoon, and then it <laughs> turned into seventy years. An but, epic. Um, <laughs> An epic, yeah. It was a story about my, um, and it was sort of a creative nonfiction story about my father and his attempts to grow fruit trees when I was growing up. And they, they never took, he would plant trees and they, for everything that could happen wrong, happened to those trees. <laughs> and then um, when he was a little bit older, when he retired and moved to a new place, he just threw some peach pits in the back garden and didn't really think about them. And the next summer or spring, my mom discovered baby trees. And uh, he nurtured those trees and he ended up with a really beautiful peach orchard for the last maybe 10 or 15 years of his life. So I wanted to write a story about that. And I did, and it was an okay story, but um, somehow I just knew there was more going on. The characters were bigger than just this story. Um, and people who are reading it weren't quite understanding what was so great about trees growing. <laughs> so they needed the, they're like, oh, it's, it's lovely, but trees grow. <laughs> so they needed to understand why it mattered that this man's trees grew. And that meant understanding who he was and where he came from. And, um, and that's what sent me down this path of trying to understand my father, which is somebody who I hadn't really tried to understand for most of my life. You mentioned in your acknowledgements as well that you were partly inspired by these stories that your father told you kind of after all this time, things that you'd never spoken about before, quite traumatic events. And 
I imagine for you, perhaps that was quite a difficult thing to write about, quite a quite a challenging topic because you know you, you wanted to do your father's life and and stories justice, although it is fiction. There's an element of, I guess, reality to it as well. Did you did you struggle with this kind of concept of writing about trauma and identity, or was it a kind of an obvious thing to write about because you had to tell it truthfully? I I struggled. It wasn't it wasn't obvious that this was. I mean, I I had those notes from there was this one day where my dad did tell us a few stories. He he didn't tell us much, but he did tell us a few one day, and I I kind of would look at them and think, is is this where I need to go to get to the peach trees? And um, and then, and I kind of thought, how 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 dare I? You know, maybe maybe I shouldn't tell those. But then I just kept coming back to it. You know, but this is the story. This is this is the reason. Um, and I think it's a, it, it was so blurry what he was able to tell. There wasn't enough to make it factual. So mm-hmm. I sort of felt like um, sort of either way, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make it factual because there wasn't enough information. And I, could I call it fiction because there were roots in real life? And I think actually that's what made me go towards saying, okay, it's a novel, it's fiction. And always before my writing had been much more sort of creative nonfiction, I I just got to a point where I, I couldn't draw on an experience mm. in my own life because I didn't have it. I thought all three of your main characters, you've mentioned it's a uh, sort of family, family generational novel and, and all three of your characters are so strong that it's incredibly hard for me to pick a favourite of all of, of one of them because I think they're all so brilliant. Uh, they, they all really moved me with their own personal stories. Did you find... That you had a favorite, or would that be quite cruel of me to ask that? <laughs> oh, I like this question. Um, so we've got these the three. There's a uh, Melin, who is the the oldest generation. She's sort of the mother, then grandmother, and then we've got Renshu, who is also calls himself Henry. And he's the father, and then there's his daughter Lily, and she's the third generation. Um, and once I decided that this has to be fiction, I, I couldn't make it nonfiction. The character who was the most fun to write was um, Melin, the grandmother who would have the least um, least amount of a, of a real life analog that I would know. So my, my Chinese grandmother, um, I met a few times and I loved her. She was wonderful, but I only met her a few times as a child. So I didn't know um, much about her life so I had this broad a wide open field to imagine her and that became really really fun uh, the other two sort of main characters they have their their doppelgangers in in real life I would say mm-hmm. myself and my father I, I kept on having to pull away from well what what did happen or what the real person might have said and say no 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 it, it's okay this is fiction I don't have to be true to real life I have to be true to the character and that Mm. was a bigger challenge so yeah was that uh was that particularly difficult when you had to sort of say to yourself no this is completely fiction and the character's going to go off in a a different direction to perhaps their real life counterpart yeah that and I keep reminding so um 
my family hasn't read it yet. I'm one of the one of the people who decided not to let my family read it before <laughs> publication, but I keep telling them it's fiction, it's fiction, <laughs> just remember. Um, yeah, it was freeing to go to fiction, but also, um, again, a little scary. And mm. you, you, do, you do worry a little about the, the real life person. Um, but I, I guess, you know, we're both, we're both writers, you know, and that's um, a choice that we make if we're going to involve people who might think they see themselves in our work, mm. you know, that. Yeah, I think even, even if you don't write about things that are parallel to your own life, you're going to get members of your family and friends look at this look at this novel and say is that me you know have you used me yeah. as inspiration <laughs> so I think they'll find it anyway even if you didn't intend it yeah so I mean so there are the obvious ones and then I think the way I've put more the more um hidden ones are like in people who would be my friends you know the characters who have you know sort of the the character Lily who is a little bit my analog mm. her friends I've kind of buried everybody in there so Nobody, hopefully nobody says, that's me. (laughs) Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So writing about the Dow family and, and you've said kind of Lily is your counterpart. Did you feel that it, it brought you a closer connection to your family and your Chinese heritage? Did it, did it give you 
uh, a new understanding of your own life? Yes, definitely. I think, um, you know, I was thinking about this question. I think what fiction gave me that choice to say this is fictional, it, it gave me permission to look at the history and look at what all these different families experienced, what um, many, many Chinese experienced. And, and, and then I could put together a narrative of what could have happened. And, um, mm. and it just gave me a really much more appreciation for whatever my family would have gone through, which I don't know the exact um, details of, but I, I have a great appreciation of what they might have gone through, as well as just a broader appreciation of the, the difficulties of that, you know, modern China faced as it kind of hurtled away from being um, ruled by emperors to this republic that was so chaotic. And then the, the wars and moving to communism. And I mean, it was such a chaotic time. And before I started this, all, all I knew was, uh, that it was complicated and scary. But just saying, well, I'm gonna write a story kind of opened up the door and I said, well, people lived through it, so, so what did happen? Yeah, there's, there's so much kind of political and social context going on around your characters. How did you achieve that balance between imparting the kind of historical context, but also making natural dialogue? Because I think that's quite something that's quite difficult to do. Yeah, that is. And um, I did think about that. And, and my editors would sometimes they say, sounds like history here. <laughs> you know, when there, <laughs> when there were sections where you know, there's a little too much history. Yeah. Um, but I think, and so those got cut. Um, <laughs> but what I tried to remind myself is um, the characters, they're living through these moments in history. They're not looking at history from 2019 or 2020, you know, they're not looking, they don't know what's happening. They just know the immediate chaos mm. surrounding them or the immediate relief in, in some cases. Um, so I had to really, to be really kind of put myself in the mindset of what, what would they know? What would they be aware of? And what might they be thinking um, and talking about? So there are many huge events that um, they don't talk about, they don't mention at all because they don't realize these are going on. And um, mm. so one, for example, is the, the breaching of the, of the Yellow River. Um, but I had to leave that, which is, you know, very kind of important slash famous thing that happened in the, in the Sino-Japanese War. But I had to leave that all out because my characters were in another part of China. They wouldn't have known. They wouldn't have known mm. why this happened. So that trying to keep that perspective of actually living through it as opposed to looking back on it was what I hope helped make it feel like it was alive and not historical. Yeah, I think with your novel, there's kind of enough historical context that you have an understanding of what's going on. But I think as a reader, someone like me who doesn't know a huge deal about the history of China it makes you think it makes you more interested in it and I think there'll certainly be readers who will want to go back and and delve into the history books and perhaps read some of the books that you've recommended at the back of the novel that uh that kind of inspire kind of a new a new line of reading really oh that would be a triumph because boy the those researchers have really done some tremendous work on 
putting context into the historical con content into mm -hmm. that context. So, yeah. Thinking back now to that wonderful image of your father's uh, trees growing in the garden, I wondered whether you could speak a little bit more about the, the meaning of the title, because that becomes significant in, in the novel and it becomes a, a, a story that uh, Malian tells Renchu. I wondered if you could speak about the significance of the title. The title, Peach Blossom Spring. So Peach Blossom Spring is the name of a poem by a, a Chinese poet called Tao Qian, also known as Tao Yunming. Um, and he was quite early, maybe third, fourth century. And it's a, it's sort of a little bit about a uh, utopia. You can, and it's a, a fisherman falls asleep and wakes up, finds a utopia. It's a much loved poem and it's been, there's been, it's been illustrated and um, told in many different ways in, in Chinese culture. So I didn't know about this actually when I started writing, I was about six months into writing um, happily, ha you know, after, after the short story. And someone said, well, maybe you should just find out all the significance of peaches and peach trees. And I said, oh yeah, that, that's good. And, and then I found, I kind of stumbled on this story and I was, I was sort of shocked at how it echoed some of the themes that I was looking mm. at. So um, I don't wanna give away too much about the story, although I would encourage people to go and, and read it. And um, you could just look at Peach Blossom Spring um, or read it in my book. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the original title of, of my book was not this. It was, it was called Henry Dreams and Orchard. And that was the title of the short story. And um, my agent, wonderful agent, was a little skeptical of the title always. But I said, no, that's the title. That's the title. And she started <laughs> calling it Peach Blossom Spring. I'd say, here's, you know, here's this draft of Henry Dreams and Orchard. And she's like, oh, great. Thank you for Peach Blossom Spring. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I developed it, I realized that kind of the center of gravity of the novel shifted away from, from the, the orchard that I've, I've mentioned to ideas about utopias. And, and uh, it just seemed like, you know what? The agent made the right call. It's Peach Blossom Spring. <laughs> mm. That's incredible for me to hear that you discovered that poem so late into the process. Well. I say so late, obviously it's a significant period of writing time that passed before you kind of chose the title and, and realised the significance of that poem, but it fits so well with the novel. I can't quite believe that it happened late in the day. It's a spooky thing, yeah. You know, there's another mm. sort of really spooky thing, of, again, about peach blossoms. Um, I had chosen a, a particular town in um, China to be the hometown of the main character, Meilin. This town is called Yichang. And... Um, I visited China to research the book. And when I visited, and I didn't know this was going to happen. Um, uh, we went to the, it's near where the Three Gorges um, project is. And uh, the day that I visited, everyone on the tour was looking at this amazing dam project, hydroelectric project. I was shocked because there were peach trees everywhere in blossom. Oh, wow. Yeah. So all my pictures from that day are peach blossoms. <laughs> Never mind this marvel of engineering. <laughs> but, but I didn't know that that, that was that's, that's some sort of fate that is, I think. That's, yeah. that's amazing. So we've, we've talked already about the kind of the scope of your novel and, and how it's almost quite daunting in a way, the, the kind of time period you've covered. And 
did you feel like uh, not put off by that prospect, but did it make you hesitate when you thought, right, I'm going to write this novel that's going to have a huge uh, cover, a huge period in time, and have all this kind of historical and political uh, context with it? I think I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so sort of ignorance, <laughs> bliss, kind of kind of situation. Um, I just knew I had to get from sort of point A to point B, where point A was my dad as a child um, kind of wandering around China with his family and point B being those trees. Um, but I think one of the things actually that really made it seem possible was seeing other huge novels that covered many, many years. And one read that I read just before kind of diving into this was a novel called Do Not Say We Have Nothing by the um, Canadian novelist Madeleine Tien. And that's also about China and uh, the Chinese, uh, the, the Civil War and Cultural Revolution. Her, her characters stay in China though, and mine leave. So I think, and she covers many years as well. And I sort of think I read that and I just felt like this was an amazing book. And I have a story that needs to be in conversation with it because there's a story of the people who left China. and that's what I want to tell. So uh, yeah, I think mm. that was a, a big inspiration and sort of a, a propelling point. Yeah, so the kind of compulsion to write it propelled you through the research. Yeah, and it was fascinating research. I mean, like how we were talking, you know, when, once I gave myself permission to look at what was there, mm. I couldn't stop looking. <laughs> and you mentioned in your acknowledgements that you had some art council funding, uh, which enabled you to visit China and Taiwan. So I can imagine those visits were absolutely transformative for your research, but how did you find them? Did it help? I guess it must have done, but can you talk about how it helped to inform your writing? Those were, those were incredible um, visits, yes. I already had the synopsis of the novel and I kind of knew what the story was going to look like. And, um, and then I applied for that. So, and why that matters is, I wanted to retrace as much as I could my character's footsteps. So the time that I was there was focused on, you know, I knew I wanted to see this part of the city of Chongqing and I knew I wanted to go to the, you know, spend some time on the Yangtze River. And, and in Tai when I was in Taiwan, I knew there were particular places that I wanted to look for. Um, so that kind of research trip later in the process for me was, was beneficial because I could be quite focused. Had I gone earlier, I might have been, well, maybe I'll make the novel about this or maybe I'll make it by that, you know, it would get quite distracted. Yeah. And then while it would have been amazing to go on the research trips at an early point, I think um, I might have, well, it would have had less purpose and, and or less purposeful. I would have probably lost a little focus. Um, that being said, there were things that I learned on the trips that I then added in to the novel. So it wasn't like a, of course, you know, you, you don't go to research something because you think you already know what's there. You know, you, you go mm, hoping yeah. to, to discover an aspect that you didn't appreciate so much before. And in fact, a huge part of the, the Taiwan section came from that research trip. But coming back from Taiwan, I was like, I want to make it all about Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> so, because that was, yeah, that was a pretty, very special country. 
Mm. I can imagine it was very tempting to kind of go off track and write about something new that you'd learned. Yeah, well, there was in, there was a whole chapter that was in, in China, in the city of Chengdu, um, which got cut because it just, I loved it. It may become a short story. It it wasn't as efficient as we needed it to be for the, <laughs> for the story, but yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what the process was like for you getting an agent and then your book deal. How did, how did you go about getting an agent? So my agent story, um, it's a, maybe a story of, of, of hope for people who don't necessarily want to write letters to agents. <laughs> what happened was I, um, I had written, I had been writing a lot of different things and something that I had written a piece of creative nonfiction was shortlisted for a competition with Wasafiri magazine. And this was on their website. And um, in March of 2018, so just about four years ago now, I woke up one Saturday morning to an email that was titled, um, Your Writing. So I opened it up and it said, Dear Melissa, I found this piece of yours of Wasafiri online and I really liked it. And then I found some other work of yours online and I thought it was great. Do you have an agent? And are you working on anything long form? And it was signed, um, Claire Alexander. And I thought, oh, well, who's Claire Alexander? <laughs> so, I, so I looked her up and she's like a legend of agents. And I thought, wow, okay. So I wrote her back right away. I said, no, I do not have an agent. And yes, I have uh, a, a few ideas. So I told her and we kind of went back and forth and um, she liked the idea that I had. What I had at that point was just a, uh, the synopsis. And yeah, I, I'd had the synopsis. I had about 2,500 words, some of the opening scenes and um, that were smooth. And then I, I think I had about, maybe about 20,000 words of just writing anything, 20, maybe 20 or 30,000 words of just random scenes that I thought should be in the novel, but I didn't know where or how they were gonna connect. But, and um, so I went down and spoke with her and she was, she was really interested. The synopsis was really, key and I would think if there's any sort of tiny bits of advice for somebody writing a novel is if, if you have to force yourself into writing a 500 word synopsis you ask yourself what if it's a book what does it look like then um, somehow that really focused me um, and and she could see where I was going with it she offered me representation and then I worked on it it would have been another two years um, both with her and then I was able to get a, um, a fellowship where I worked on it almost full-time for about a year. And then we, we submitted early in 2020. So from deciding um, to go from the short story to uh, a draft to offer publishers was about two years. Um, and that included the research and that drafting. Um, I mean, these are ideas I've been thinking about for a long time. Yeah, that's an interesting story. I think it, if we can take anything from that is enter competitions and get your work out there because obviously that's how you were noticed. So that's a great way of doing it. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing. I think this visibility is just, you don't know who's who's out there well, noticing and it's, it's great, you never know. And also it's such a good experience because if you enter a lot of competitions, you get a lot of rejections, mm -hmm. which is a good thing. <laughs> 
good muscle yeah. and you learn a lot from you know shorter shorter things you know you, you learn just by trying again and again you, you kind of figure out how you write and what what you want to say and I think that's a much easier easier way to get into for me that you know I think by the time I thought I went okay I'm going to try a novel I, I did kind of have a sense of what kind of writer I was had I sat down at 21 and said I'm going to write be a writer and write a novel I think it would have just been too mm. much for me at that point and wouldn't have gotten anywhere yeah you mentioned as well in your acknowledgements how important the writing community is for you um and obviously you've had uh mentoring and you've uh you were mentored at UEA and you were an apprentice at the word factory as well so how has working with others inspired you not just for this book but kind of in your writing craft in general oh I love that question <laughs> <laughs> um working with others and the writing community um it's a wonderful thing to have a mentor I think for me it may it gave me the chance to say to ha to kind of say oh someone is looking at my writing and they're interested in it as writing and 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 so and um that felt like a huge vote of confidence um so mentoring is is wonderful that for that for that sort of focus the laser-like focus on maybe a piece of work that a writer is working on the sense of being in a, a writer group or a community where maybe you workshop and you give feedback to other people and that's also really good for for a variety of reasons you learn how to articulate what works for you and doesn't work for you as a reader so that you learn for yourself as a writer and also you start to realize or i start to realize that there's no there is no one way to do anything and um it does, you know, every writer is going to do something differently. And if they are true to the piece that they're writing and the reasons they want to write it, then, then it can be successful. And it doesn't mean that others can't, you know, it, every single writer and every single piece is, works on its own terms. And that's something that I think I got a, a sense for by just being in a lot of groups, um, which is, it's, it's not the same as if you just think, Oh, those are the the published writers in Granta or whatever you know. Granta is wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, but you know, if, if if you think it's there's just the one publication and one way to write, then it's like you're, um, yeah, you just make the world way too small. Uh, but working with others, you realize it's an amazingly huge creative world, and that's what I love about writing. So you must have picked up some great advice along the way I was wondering you mentioned already the the great bit of advice about writing a synopsis and I think many writers find writing a synopsis hard and I think it is it is a challenge sometimes but like you say it's a great way of working out what your novel is actually about but I was wondering if you could share perhaps your top three tips for for writing a novel so number one uh write something that you care about like desperately care about you have to care about it so much that if it never gets published or if it gets published and people hate it you don't care you just have to write this thing um because they take so long so much energy and so much heart and if you don't if you if you don't love it then you're just in for heartbreak so so I think that's the biggest thing it's just kind of right what you what you you would regret not having tried even if even if it 
Mm. The kind of thing like you think it would be worse to do a bad job than not to try at all. So that's, you know, it has to be that sort of urgent and that important. Um, and then the second tip, maybe not exactly write every day. I, I like that. I like to write every day. I know that can be quite a divisive kind of thing to say, but maybe it's like touch the work every day or often so that you don't lose its pulse. So whether, you know, maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's 10, maybe sometimes you're just like thinking about the characters you're on a walk and you're thinking about shoes they would wear and restaurants they would like or, but you just, it's, it's just keeping in touch with the world of the novel so that it becomes, the more real it becomes to you, the more you have to draw on to make it real to the readers. And the third, read. I guess that's it, you know, read everything. <laughs> and especially I've learned hugely by reading outside of um, what I would thought would be my sort of typical choices. Um, I no longer have typical choices because I'll just read read anything and everything because you there's you can learn from you can learn dialogue from other people imagery pacing just read and hopefully you love reading and love writing so hopefully these are all not terribly <laughs> difficult tips to do <laughs> yeah if you don't love reading you're doing the wrong uh, task you shouldn't be writing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking of readers can you think of any comparisons, books that uh, books that you could com compare Peach Blossom Spring to, perhaps things that you could say, if you love this, then you'll really enjoy Peach Blossom Spring? Oh, um, at the risk of being like, you know, aligning myself with greats. Um, <laughs> if you liked uh, the Madeleine Tien book that I mentioned, Do Not Say We Have Nothing, um, this is uh, maybe it. A family in a different time so that's you know at the same time different story uh that's one and some people have mentioned uh pachinko is another one by min jin lee that has come up in conversation i really enjoyed pachinko a lot so that's perhaps one that if you enjoyed pachinko you might you might like mine um a little bit similar um and then maybe there's one called The Mountain Sing. Now I'm just telling you books that I loved, <laughs> but kind of inspired <laughs> me. Um, and that's by a Vietnamese writer called um, uh, Nguyen Phan Khe Mai. Uh, I'm not sure if I said that correctly, uh, but The Mountain Sing is, is the name of her book. And that's also very wonderful. And finally, I was wondering, are you able to tell us if you're working on anything new at the moment? Not much. <laughs> I have some ideas. You know, what I have are um, themes. I don't yet have mm -hmm. a story. I'm kind of looking around. I have some ideas of stories, but I'm kind of waiting for something to just like grab, grab mm -hmm. my imagination the way this one did and just sort of say, you need to write me. And then, and then I think all these themes and topics I'm interested in will, will find a way, but I'm still kind of on the lookout for a, a story that I want to spend mm. a few years with. <laughs> How are you doing that? Are you kind of free writing? What's your method of kind of tapping into that inspiration? Just the things that stop me in my tracks. So like the this 
the, the original peach tree story that I wrote about my dad, it was my mom telling me like, oh, I, you know, daddy has these peach trees now that stopped me in my tracks, you know? So mm -hmm. if I, if I read something online, there've been two articles at the moment that I read that I just couldn't stop thinking about that I might, you know, go back to either one of those. Um, and then kind of see, oh, well, maybe there's, there's a story in that. Um, and then there was a section actually in, in my Peach Blossom Spring, another chapter that got chopped out. Thank you, editors, that they said, well, this really <laughs> should be a novel. So there's a, there's a, yeah, I might, if I want to go back into this time period, there was a really interesting part that they, they just felt pulled to too much focus. So, I mean, being a little bit coy because I don't want to commit because as soon as I say, I'll no, like, no, <laughs> I will um, <laughs> feel like I have to do it. I've realized that's another thing I've realized is once I kind of say I'm going to do something regarding writing, I, I tend to just do it or feel like I have to do it, mm. um, which is sort of a later development for me in my life. Like now I keep my promises. I didn't always used to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm sure you'll come up with something great and uh, I look forward to hearing about what you're going to write next. So thank you so much, Melissa, for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you, Chloe. It was so fun. And I um, and congratulations on your book coming up too. I'm looking forward to your book. <laughs> that was Melissa Fu talking about her historical novel, Peach Blossom Spring, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'll be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.